Amen. Thank you, choir. Thank you, Effie. And thank you, Lynn, for explaining the flying scroll to us. Not the flying squirrel, but the flying scroll. Turn with me, please, in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 5, verses 1 through 8. If you're new with us, we've been studying these smaller books in the Old Testament leading up to the birth of Christ, or 400 years before the birth of Christ. That's page 794 in the Bibles provided for you in the pew. There are eight of these night visions or dreams, as Lynn said, from uh, that Zechariah experienced. And uh, these last ones were especially startling to him. Uh, and, but they contain very good news. And today we're looking at two visions together because they form two sides of the gospel coin. We're looking at the vision of the flying scroll and the vision of the basket. Six and seven. Two sides of the gospel coin. The, the law and the gospel. Both are good news. But God tells us the bad news, as Lynn explained too, in order to drive us to the good news. God is a good parent. He's not always a gentle parent. He's a loving parent. He loves us too much to allow us to go on in our destruction so that at times he wounds in order to heal. Begin reading in verse 1 of Zechariah chapter 5. <clears throat> Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a flying scroll. And he said to me, What do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits, and its width 10 cubits, or 30 feet by 15 feet. Then he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out or banished from the temple according to what is on one side. And everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out or sent away according to what is on the other side. I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name. And it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones. Then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, Lift your eyes and see what this is that is going out. And I said, What is it? He said, This is the basket that is going out. He said, This is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Lord, the prophet asked, is there no balm in Gilead? Is there nothing to heal 
my people sick with sin? The answer of the gospel is yes. We pray we would see it in these two visions. And these two strange sounding stories would become precious treasures to us, images of the gospel of Christ in whose name we pray. God's people said, amen. Last week, I told you about my friend, Pastor Wilbur in Peru. I met him on one of my mission trips there, and he was the pastor of our mission team that had been uh, sent there to do work among uh, medical professionals and to do medical missions too. And I told you about my friend Jerry Gutierrez who came to Christ in, uh, in Peru out of the Shining Path guerrilla terrorist movement, came to America, got his college and seminary degree, uh, and then uh, went back and planted a church and eventually had to leave because he was such a wanted man by his former terrorist brothers. And, and, and then he started a, a ministry called Project Nehemiah to the orphan children, the street children, the many orphan children killed by the Shining Path guerrillas. He started a ministry to take them off the streets and, and uh, give them food, shelter, and clothing, tell them about Jesus, send them on in their education. And Pastor Wilbur was one of those orphans, came to Christ and now eventually returned and became the pastor. Well, Pastor Wilbur went on to tell us the story of his of how he got to that orphanage. His mother was a victim of the Shining Path guerrilla terrorism. His mother was brutally murdered by those terrorists. And his father knew that unless people stood bravely against that terrorist movement, that there would be no chance of its ever uh, being turned back. So his father took Wilbur to the orphanage that Jerry had started. And he said, I'm afraid my son is soon going to be an orphan. And then he went to the police and the authorities and he told them, he gave them an eyewitness account. He identified the people who killed his wife. And soon after that, he was killed too. Now, when he told us that story, one of the doctors, one of my friends in the room, Nathan said, uh, Pastor Wilbur, that is the saddest news I've ever heard in my life. That is the most tragic story I have ever experienced. How did you go on? How did you go to the, how did you keep from being so mad at God that you would never go near to his church? You would never love Christ, but you've not only you not only love Christ, you, you love the church. You've given yourself for how in view of that sad, sad news have you been able to live? And Pastor Wilbur was a little confused and he said, I think you've missed the point of the story. It is sad news. It's tragic that I lost my parents. I wept every day. I miss them every day. 
But don't you see that it would, the more tragic story would have been had I never gone to that orphanage. I never would have heard about Christ. If I had never heard about Christ, I would go to hell. It is sad news, tragic news that my parents were killed, but it is eternally tragic news if I had never heard Christ and believed on him. What is your definition of bad news? What is your definition of good news? Is it informed by the scripture's worldview or by yours or someone else's? God loves us so much. He is willing to tell us, terrify us even with bad news that we might be driven to the good news. That's what's happening in this passage. A scroll comes from heaven, flying scroll. A flying Bible. But not just that. It is a flying temple. The, 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 the dimensions of this scroll are 30 feet by 15, as I said before. The, the, that's, those are the dimensions of the temple court. We've studied the, 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 these minor prophets enough now to know what that temple court is, basically. It was that place where the, the, the high priest went with, the, or the priest went with the sacrifice of the sinner. The sinner would bring a calf and say, effectively, I have sinned. And I want you to demonstrate God's judgment on my sin by taking this calf and sacrificing it on the altar. And that blood-soaked altar contained that, that carcass of that, of that calf. And it was a, a vivid picture of what that person's sin deserved before God. But in that same place was also the menorah, the light. And, and they had already experienced the, the spoken word of God, the written word of God before that's what led them to make the sacrifice. And, and in that place, they saw demonstrated this motion that is illustrated here. I am convicted of my sin by the scroll, by the words of the law. I respond to it by confessing. God demonstrates his judgment on it in this, in this sacrificial calf. And then I realized there is light and eventually the high priest would emerge from the Holy of Holies and lift his hands and say, your sins are forgiven. And so yeah, Zechariah is saying, I saw this vividly come that, that, that God so desires for us to know how to be reconciled with him. He is flying this image to us. But in order to confess, you have to know what you need to confess. You have to be convicted of sin. And that comes by the ministry of the law. Now, the law is, is pictured for us in this image by, by just two commandments, representing all ten commandments. On one side, he says, there is this message you shall not swear falsely by my name. That's the third commandment. Do not take my name in vain. And that third commandment represents all four commandments of the first, sometimes we call them the first 
table of the law. There's one table of the law, one section of the, the law, the Ten Commandments, that have to do with our, uh, with our worship. And the second has to do with the way we treat others. So the first table of the law, our, our duty to worship God the way he prescribes is in those first four commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall make no other grave, no graven image. Take not my name in vain and keep the Sabbath day holy. They're all represented by that one commandment. Do not swear falsely by my name. Meaning, if you confess with your mouth that you're a follower of me, and yet with your life you profess otherwise, you're swearing falsely by my name. Have no other God. No other greater love. He is like a, an appropriately jealous husband in those first two commandments. You must have no other God. You must not make an idol of anything else, even a good thing. Family, possessions, political preferences, worship preferences, preferences of people, nothing. I must be your supreme love. And then the fourth commandment is implied as well which is the response to redemption. You know, our catechism, that you can find in the back of your, of your hymnal, a, a brief summary, a pithy summary of the, the, the key doctrines of our theology. Our catechism asks, what is the introduction or what is the preface to the Ten Commandments? What does it teach us? And the answer is, it teaches us that because God is the Lord, because he is our God, and because he is our Redeemer, we must keep all of the commandments. Grace precedes the commandments. The grace of God's being. He is the Lord. No matter what he says, you have no right to question it. Just because he is God, you must obey it. Just because he is God. But it's more than that. He is our covenant-keeping God. He's made a relationship with us. He's an appropriately jealous husband. He's a father. So because he's our God, our father, we must keep the commandments. And because he is our redeemer. In gratitude for the redemption he has purchased for us in Christ, we must keep his commandments. That's the fourth command. The fourth commandment is that, is that response to grace. I'm giving you one whole day in the week by which I've given you permission as well as a command. Do not labor. I'm doing it. Because I want you to know I'm providing seven days worth of provisions for six days worth of labor. I want you to know above all things on this day that the way I save you is by free grace, not by your labor. I want to, I've been giving you a whole day by which you may thank me for the redemption you've received. I'm giving you a whole day by which you might think on me and my regard of you, the way I regard you, the way I love you, and to try to cleanse the poison of the world's perspective from your mind. I remember reading a, 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 a quote from Gerald Moore, the famous accompanist 
once who said, he referred to a famous opera singer and he said, her life, her career was ruined by the man she loved who had not an atom of music in his soul. And because of his callousness and cruelty, he enjoyed punishing her by telling her every day she was nothing. Every day of the week, this world and its forces are telling you, you are nothing. Unless you take what we're offering. And God, God can contest that, that view, that poisonous uh, idea every day by your Bible reading or prayer. But here is one day in seven by which you come morning and evening and you hear God say, No, I love you. I've made you in my image. You belong to me. This is the way my children live. Well, that's the first table of the law. And and it it exposes our idolatry. It exposes our ingratitude. It exposes that that we give more regard to Mondays than Sundays. It, It flushes out all of that sin. And then there's the other table of the law. On the other side of the scroll was the eighth commandment. You shall not steal. John Calvin says that the eighth commandment is on the other side of the scroll in order to impress upon the Israelites and us that, uh, that robbing God, living irreverently before God is no different from thievery. Thievery in our book, in our subculture, thievery is a worse sin than worshiping God falsely, but not in God's book. They're the same. They're the same. To, to, not, to, not to worship him, not to respond in gratitude to him, not to say no to every other competing love is to rob him of his glory and his praise. Now, the, the other eight commandments or the other, the remaining uh, six commandments are the commandments relating to our, the way we interact with each other. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And our catechism uh, characterizes each of those commandments in two ways. It says, gathering up all of the biblical information throughout the Bible says, what, what duties are, are required in the commandment, what duties are forbidden? And the, the duties required in the eighth commandment. It is that the eighth commandment requires our pursuing whatsoever will prosper the wealth and outward estate of our neighbors and ourselves. What sins are forbidden? Whatsoever doth or may unjustly hinder our own or our neighbor's wealth or outward estate. Well, you'll say, you know, I, I've, of, all the, of all the commandments, I haven't, I haven't broken the eighth one. I haven't stolen anything. Well, have you not? Have you actually proactively pursued the outward estate of your neighbors in Memphis? around the world. We sin passively 
against those whom we work for, for instance. It's estimated $230 billion. The American economy loses $230 billion a year by stolen time. People coming late, checking out early, not giving a full day's labor. And then we steal, according to the the catechism's exposition of the commandment, we steal by being passive, failing to break down barriers like the ability to read or breaking down barriers like payday lending, keeping one from getting just loans, breaking down barriers to education, breaking down barriers to health care, breaking down barriers to transportation so people can get to jobs. That's also a form of stealing. We could go through all of the commandments uh, that way if you would like. If you're still not convinced that you are a sinner, we can go through the sixth commandment. Oh, I I I even skipped the fifth commandment. Honor father and mother, forgive me. That your days may be long upon the earth. We could go through all of them. What are the duties prescribed? What are the things forbidden? And none of us would find ourselves standing righteously on our record. It drives us to the gospel. And then this is the gospel. It's the image of the basket. The basket was a measuring device. It measured out a bushel, a just bushel. When you went to the market, you wanted to get a bushel of this or you want to be paid for a bushel of that then that was a standard measurement. And so when that, when that grain was put in that basket and, and it was level, then that was a just measurement. It was justified. And so the Lord says effectively, when you come clean with your sin, when you admit and confess that you are as sinful as the Bible says you are, Then he will put your sins in the basket. Put the sins in the basket yourself. Call them what they are. Now he does it in a very uh, inviting way, doesn't he? Lift up your eyes and see what this is. In the Old Testament, there are several commands to look up. Abraham, look up and see the stars. That's how many descendants I'm going to give to you. Uh, David, look up and see the angel who is going, not only sent the plague, but he's going to arrest it. Israel, look up and see the brazen serpent, the one that will save you from from this plague. Look up and behold the salvation of your God. It's interesting. In the New Testament, there is no command to look up. But there are descriptions of people who looked up on their own. The Pharisee, for instance, he looked up and he said, I thank you that I'm not like this, this tax collector over here. Or there was the blind man who, before Jesus had finished healing him, looked up and saw people as trees walking. Those are people who tried to find their own salvation. They looked up on their own. Not in response 
to the gospel command, look to me alone. But we do find, though we don't find uh, the command to look up, we do, we do see Jesus looking up everywhere. Jesus looked up when, when the blind and mute man came to him and he said, Father, open his, uh, his mouth and his ears. He looked up in the sycamore tree and he saw Zacchaeus. He looked up outside of Zachariah, uh, Zacchaeus, I mean, uh, Lazarus's tomb. And he said, Father, you've brought me to this point to glorify me. Bring him to life. He looked up from the cross and he said, Father, Father, why, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The, the implication is, Quit looking up on your own to find your own redemption. Quit looking up on your own to find something that is going to atone for your sin, that is going to erase your shame. Quit looking up at your own resources, but look up to Jesus who has already looked up for you. He looked up and he found you. He looks up to the Father and he says, raise him from the dead. He looks up to the Father and said, apply my redemption to him on my behalf. Lift up your eyes and see the salvation of the Lord. And this is what he will do. He will take your sin that you've put in that basket and he will push it down and he'll cover it with a leaden lid. Now, this was long before they knew how stable lead was as an element that it could protect you from radioactive poisoning, radiation poisoning. All they knew was if you make a lid over a basket out of lead, no animal, no wild animal can open that and get your grain. You put that lead lid on it, nothing can get to it and expose it again. When Jesus saves you from your sins, He puts your sin in the basket of justification and he covers it with a lid. And he said, don't open it again. Don't keep opening it. You keep trying to claw at that lid and open it up and see if you can do something about the shame you feel. You keep clawing, opening it, seeing if there's something you can do to make yourself right with God, leave it alone. Paul says something very interesting to the Corinthians. First Corinthians chapter six. Some were worried that they were not saved, but most were, most were judgmental of everybody else that they weren't as righteous as they were. And so Paul comes at their bickering, at their, at their arguing in a very interesting way. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? You can hear them saying, we certainly know that. And we know that there are some unrighteous people in this church who will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then Paul goes to meddling. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. 
and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. There were people in this, in this church who were constantly trying to open other people's baskets and shame them with sins they had been washed of, justified, sanctified of. But they viewed them as lesser believers than they were because of the kinds of sin they've committed. And Paul says, every sin committed is equally damnable before God. So so the application is this, quit clawing at your own basket, reviving those sins. Here's the other application, quit clawing at other people's basket. Here's the NAS version, the North Alabama Standard Interpretation. Don't open somebody else's basket if you don't want your basket opened. The good news is you can come clean with God with everything. And when it's cleansed by the blood, he puts it in a basket with a lead lid over it and he forbids you and anyone else from opening it and condemning you again. And the church is where you go to find that incarnated among your brothers and sisters in Christ. And here's what I've observed. Those who keep trying to open the basket of others eventually have their own basket opened by God's providence. And they either respond by humble repentance or they're banished like the text says. I love an old story by Harry Ironside, the famous evangelist who talked about a man in a counting house in England. His name was Jacques. And, and he said Jacques was a nervous guy. He was always looking over his shoulder. And one day a man, a fellow worker, a fellow uh, employee came, back, came by and said, uh, Jacques, I'm a little short this week. Can you loan me? Can, can, can you loan me some money? And he said, I don't have any extra to spare. And then he bent down and he whispered and he said, I know your secret. Jacques was terrified, and so he paid him up, said, please don't tell anybody. And then every week, as you can imagine, the loans got higher and higher. Eventually, Jacques saw an advertisement in the newspaper that Queen Victoria, for her jubilee, was offering a pardon to any deserters. And so uh, Jacques wrote uh, a letter to uh, the, the queen, or the queen's Uh, representative, and he said, I didn't mean to miss the ship to Egypt. I just wanted to see my mother so terribly. And so he received a letter back and said, well, you're obviously not a deserter, so you don't need a pardon. Then he wrote back. I deserted the Navy. I knew I was supposed to be on the ship. I didn't go. I deserted. few weeks later, the extortioner came by Jacques and he said, uh, time to pay up. And Jacques said, you'll never receive anything else from me. Oh, he said, 
You're ready for me to tell your secret to everybody. He said, tell it to everybody. And he showed the letter he just received. You're pardoned. You come to Christ, tell it all. Tell it all to him. Tell it all to everybody else. And it's covered under the blood. More certain even than a lead lid. And live boldly in the comfort of the gospel. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, continue to step on our toes. Continue to offend us unto salvation. Continue to root out every unhelpful, harmful way in us. We will call it just what you call it, that we might experience again and again the liberating power of the gospel of Christ. And then please make us a gospel uh, breathing community. We share the same with everyone around us. In Jesus' name we pray, God's people said, amen.